Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. So let's talk about the work of the Spirit after Pentecost. So once the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost in the upper room, the Holy Spirit is going to play four roles. And we can put a lot of things that you would say, well, what about this, what about that? They're going to fit under one of these. The first is that He is the revealer of the Son. He is the revealer of Christ and the Godhead generally. And He's going to point people to Christ and He's going to glorify Christ. Next, he is the Savior's agent in dispensing individual salvation. Now, I put in parentheses in specific theological traditions. We're going to talk about that because there is one specific vein of Christianity that would say that's not true um, because that is not how salvation even works. So we'll just point that out. And then he's the Lord's representative in in the church, in his body. So he operates within the body. He is the representative of Christ amongst the believers who form the body of Christ. Uh, This is where we'll get into the, the different giving of gifts, the spiritual gifts. And he is the agent of sanctification. You know, he he purifies, he makes us holy, he convicts us of sin, um, things of that nature. Living by the Spirit. Exactly. So those are the four roles that we'll, t- we'll discuss the Holy Spirit playing um, post-Pentecost. Okay, so the first is that the Holy Spirit reveals. Now when we read John chapter 16, and I put the longer section of this here just so we have it, but again, I said John 13 through 16 is, is really what you want to read. Um, it's a great exposition of what the Holy Spirit's going to do once He arrives. But here's the summary. It says, Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So he's going to reveal the truth, namely Christ, and he's going to glorify Christ. And we see the flip-flop that I was talking about before. Notice before Christ is speaking by the Spirit. What the Spirit says in Christ's earthly ministry, he says. But now what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to teach us only what Christ tells him to teach. So the Holy Spirit now is serving the second member of the Trinity to glorify Christ. And um, I'm going to just leave it there because we're going to come back to this. But we're seeing here that Christ or the, the Holy Spirit is going to be the revealer of truth. John 15, 26. 
When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So this is a little earlier in the section that we just read. This is above the section we just read. And the work of the Holy Spirit post-Pentecost is primarily to glorify Christ. And um, in fact, all the works are going to be properly understood as having this one overriding purpose. Like even Scripture, which the Holy Spirit was, as we saw before, the mechanism for the Scripture, right? The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the New Testament. What is the point? To glorify Christ, to draw people to Christ. When, he, when the Holy Spirit issues prophecy, it's going to be to glorify Christ. Everything that the Holy Spirit's going to do, ultimately the goal is Christ's glorification. Bam. Mm-hmm. Anyway. You're correct. <laughs> Absolutely. By the way, there's an opposite spirit, the antithesis of the Holy Spirit, that's going to try to not glorify Christ. And that's the spirit of Antichrist, 1 John 4, 2 through 3. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, even now, is already in the world. So the Holy Spirit's goal is going to be to glorify Christ. So how does the Holy Spirit glorify Christ? Well, we've already said that the Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament Scriptures. What did the Old Testament Scriptures do? What was their purpose? Exactly, pointing people to Christ, right? Pointing people to the Messiah. So the Holy Spirit's already been operating with the goal of glorifying Christ up to this point. But 2 Peter 1.21 says, I, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter referring to here at this point? He's referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to Old Testament prophecy. Not only did, by the way, he speak through the Old Testament prophets, he preserved the Old Testament scriptures through a lot of uh, chaos and a lot of adversity. I mean, think about the fact that, you know, we discussed a, a couple weeks ago the um, exile of the nation of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem and everything was torn down. And yet the scriptures were preserved through all that. Okay. And he also is going to lead the New Testament writers to an infallible interpretation of the Old Testament because we have a lot of Old Testament scripture that is uh, interpreted in a way that the Old Testament people didn't understand and the Holy Spirit's going to be uh, who makes that possible John 14 26 as I said before the counsel of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and this phrase is really powerful to me and remind you of everything I have told you the Holy Spirit was going to supernaturally enable the disciples to recall all that Christ had taught them. Some people say, well, like, how could we know? I mean, how, how could the Scripture be accurate when, you know, this is an oral tradition and people are just handing it down and people hadn't written it down immediately? Well, we as believers can know that the Holy Spirit supernaturally enabled that process to take place so that the, the key things that Christ taught, the disciples would put them down accurately. And, you know, I've said this before, but it's worth noting. The historical nature of Christ Christianity is what sets Christianity apart 
from every other faith system. You know, when I, when I read the Bible, and I don't want this to sound bad, don't misinterpret what I'm going to say, but if I, when I read the Bible objectively, it doesn't read like a spiritual book would read if I was to make one up. Like, if I was to think about, like, if, if I don't know anything, and somebody's like, there's this book, and it's like all the oracles of God and all the deep truths, and I was to go read it, it wouldn't read anything like the Bible reads in my imagination. But the, the non-Christian books do. They're super esoteric. They're kind of this, you know, a lot of... Um, of of uh, rules and, and, and spiritual ways of, of living that are real fuzzy. But Christianity is grounded in history. And it's not just accurately depicting how God operated in history, but then it is what did those actions mean? Why did God operate like that in history? What are the ramifications of Him operating like that in history? You know, if I was to make up a book, I wouldn't have people who are supposedly uh, after God's own heart and yet they commit adultery and murder. I wouldn't have that be that guy. I wouldn't make that up. I wouldn't have the guy who everything's going to come through him. He decides to take matters into his own hands and sleeps with his slave. I wouldn't have that. But that's the, that's the actual book because it's a historical document. And so um, we have Christ... Move, moving and operating in history, his resurrection is a historical event, and this says that the Holy Spirit supernaturally is going to preserve what all happened, how it happened, and what he taught. Okay, John 16, 14. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Revelation is doctrinal as well. Because it's not just the historical things, but then we have great books like Romans and Ephesians, which are these great doctrinal treatises where the Holy Spirit has illuminated the mind of the writer to understand how to interpret all this stuff and tell you how it works. How does justification really work? How does faith really happen? How does the sanctification process actually work? How is it that the incarnation was required for there to be salvation? You know, on and on. I think it's the mind of Christ. I think he's talking about the mind of. I think he's talking about that which he understands and what he wants his church to know, okay. what he wants his body to know. Because again, here we keep ha hammering this theme. So Christ is the head, and we are the body. What does the body do? It operates based on what the head tells it to do. What's the mechanism to vivify the body and tell it what the head wants it to do? The Holy Spirit. I had never even thought of that. Why yeah. had I never thought of that? <laughs> well, that's why we have class. We've done our work here. <laughs> okay. That's why there's only one church. That's correct. There's one church because there is one body. Speaking of which, let's talk about the Holy Spirit in salvation. Now, in order to explain this accurately and to be very balanced about it, we have to talk about something called the Ordo Salutis. And the Ordo Salutis is Latin for the order of salvation. 
And it is a, in Latin because it's an idea that arose after the Reformation. And um, Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymn writers, probably the greatest hymn writer of all time, he wrote this hymn, Sinners turn, why will you die? God the Spirit asks you why. God, who all your lives hath strove, wooed you to embrace his love. Will you not the, gra the grace receive? Will you still refuse to live? Why ye long sought sinners, why? Why ye grieve your God and die? Here he quotes Ezekiel 18.31, and that's exactly what it says. Sinners, why, why will you not turn? Why are you going to choose death? That's what God asked in Ezekiel 18.31. So Charles Wesley quotes that, and as we previously studied, we are actually previously studied that Ezekiel passage. So it speaks of the idea of the Holy Spirit wooing humanity. This idea that God has been drawing humanity unto himself. The whole, I place before you life and death, choose life. Don't choose death. Well, um, you know, the great revivals of the 18th century, they all believed that this is how it worked. Uh, that's why they were great revivals, because if you go look at the, the if you read the, the sermons of, of Wesley and people like that, they're like, you know, God is calling you. He is available. Why will you not choose him? And people were like just stunned, and they gave their life to Christ in, in large numbers. Now, they believed that was the work of the Holy Spirit. They believed, they called it even a new Pentecost. In fact, if you read, or if you know the Methodist symbol, which Methodism came out of John Wesley's preaching, the Methodist symbol is the cross with a flame that is behind it. The flame was the fire of the Holy Spirit. They believed that that was the mechanism that was at work in what they were doing. Okay, now, I'm just, we don't, I don't want to have a, like an, a debate about the order salutis. I'm just telling you that there's two sides to this coin. That's all I want to do, okay? And I don't want to take a side. I'm just telling you that there are two sides, okay? The first side I'll call the traditional order. This is the order that existed until the Reformation. And it was that you believed faith and then you were saved. You were regenerated. Everybody got that? Okay. And then John Calvin said, it's the reverse. You are saved, therefore you believe. And that's why I said that the Holy Spirit in salvation doesn't really play a role in one tradition. Because if you are from the Calvinist or what some people like to call Reformed camp, you believe you have been saved since before the world was ever created, so the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to do because you just are, and then you believe. Okay, now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, you can ask a question. <laughs> I, I'm here to clarify, but I'm not, I don't want to like. That would be a non Calvinist mm -hmm. proof text. But, I mean, the Holy Spirit. Now, now listen, because Calvinists, by the way, will get way in the weeds on you and they'll go, no, 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 no. You still believe, but if you press them, and I can give you 8,000 quotes from every Calvinist that's ever lived, if you press them, you're saved first, then you believe. It, that's just the order salutis. I, 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 I mean, I can see both sides. Okay. 
Cool. Rock and roll. Glad you can. Okay, now, so. Is that the definition of what some of people would call predestination? Well, lay people like to talk about predestination where actually every Christian believes in predestination. It's not a question of predestination. It's a question of what is it that was predestined. That's that's the question. Okay? So, just I'll just leave it there. But like a lot of people go, do you believe in predestination? No Christian should say no. Every Christian Christian should say yes. Yeah, but the way I hear a lot of the definition of it is you never had a choice in the first place. Okay. I chose you. So that would be uh, so stick with me and I'm going to tell you what that's really called. Okay. okay. So, John 6.44, and this is true, every Christian, the key thing I want to make clear is every Christian, whether you're a Calvinist or not, if you're Orthodox, you don't believe you can be saved apart from God working first. If you're Orthodox, no matter which side of this coin you're on, God must move on you. You're not going to come to God. Does that make sense? So John 6.44 is one of the examples that makes that clear. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So the debate is simply about who is being drawn, not whether the Father is going to draw you. Now those who believe in the traditional approach to the order salutis would believe in a concept called prevenient grace. And we actually talked about this a long time ago, but I'm going to remind you, this is a quote from the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Church. There's a, you could get it from any theological dictionary. It says, The species of actual grace which, as an illumination or inspiration of the Holy Spirit, precedes the free determination of the will. It is held to mark the beginning of all activity leading to justification, which cannot be achieved without it, but its acceptance or rejection depends on man's free choice. It was defended by St. Augustine, who often uses the term, technical term, gratia praevenians against the Pelagians. The Pelagians taught that man would could come to God on his own. One of the one of the uh, insults that's thrown out against non-Calvinists is, "Oh, you're just a Pelagian." It's a it's a classic ad hominem attack against. Uh, non-Calvinist is that oh you, you're just a Pelagian. No Orthodox non-Calvinist is a Pelagian. It's a it's a straw man. Okay, just throwing that out there. So here's the Reformed Ordo. The Reformed Ordo, the Calvinist Order, says all are dead and powerless in sin, and God's eternal, unconditional electing will decrees that some will be saved based on the merits of Christ's work. Then regeneration enables those elect to receive justification. That would be they believe, and then sanctification begins, and then ultimately they're glorified. The traditional ordo is, all are dead and powerless in sin, and God's prevenient and regenerating grace is made available to all based on the merits of Christ's work. Prevenient grace enables repentance and contrition, thus justification, a gift of grace, then sanctification begins, then you're entirely sanctified, and then ultimately you're glorified. Okay, so I wanted to just make this clear because we're, all the things I'm going to talk about would fall into this prevenient grace category which doesn't apply if you're Reformed. Does everybody understand? Would you say traditional doesn't really adhere to total depravity? No. Traditional completely adheres to total depravity. It does? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 the question becomes, so total depravity... Yes. So total depravity says that man is totally 
depraved, totally sinful to the point that he cannot come to Christ on his own. And that's what I'm saying. We all believe that. Now, the, the question is, is he, and you can get all into semantics, but the, they, they would say, is he utterly depraved? There's no good that can come from a man. None. And it, it, can the Holy Spirit not enable someone to have any good come from them? That would be, that would be the debate. Okay. When we get into soteriology, we'll have this, we'll just hash it all out. Yes. Sure. Yeah. I'm about to. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Does Scripture teach that it's possible for somebody to refuse the call of God? Well, let me just say that those who existed for 1,600 years said yes. I'm not going to take a side right now. I don't want to be the bad guy or the good guy. I'm just telling you that uh, they would say yes. Uh, the majority of the world's Christians have been not Calvinist somehow. So um, I'll leave it at that. Okay. He convicts the world of sin. So this would be an example. We just read it. John 16. When he comes, he will convict the what? about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Next, he's going to operate through the preaching of the Word. Now we see this in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, this is a little bit fine print, this is an eye chart, so I'll just read it to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, this is Peter's sermon. So it says, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the notion that when the preaching of the Word goes forth, it is supernatural. The Holy Spirit is operating through the preaching of the Word. It pierces the heart, and it enables the person to respond. By the way, what happened here? Did everybody listening respond the same way? Some didn't believe. Some did. Right? Okay. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 18. How then can they call on him who they have, who, him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? That second question is super operative. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is, uh, this is my italics, faith comes from what is, and what is heard comes from through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear 
Yes, they did. This is the answer to your question. Their voice has gone out to the whole world and their words to the ends of the world. Again, the idea that faith comes through the preaching, through the message of Christ. And when you preach, the Holy Spirit is operating supernaturally. Provenient grace enables the person to respond. But this is in this section, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, which is super important in your whole... If you, if you want to discuss justification at all, this is the like... Romans chapter 9 is like the cornerstone of Calvinism. And this whole section is about the Israelites. And what he's saying is... He's asking this question in Romans 9. Okay, if everything you just said is true about justification by faith and you're not justified by the law, then is God, has God, forgive my French, screwed over the Israelites? Is, are they ho like, was he unfair to them? That's what he asks. And he spends 9, 10, 11 answering that question. And this comes in the middle of that. And he says, faith comes by hearing. And did they get to hear? Yes, they did. But they didn't respond. Therefore, God has not been unfair to them. Okay. Mark chapter 6, verse 15 through 16. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all create creation, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. You could make the argument that it doesn't say whoever, whoever is saved will believe and get baptized. It says whoever believes will be saved. So that would be another example of the provenient grace idea. Okay, so I just wanted to mention that there's a section of Christianity that believes that the Holy Spirit operating through the conviction of the sin of sin in the world and through the preaching of the gospel kind of salts, if you will, kind of seasons the world to receive the gospel and makes it possible to respond. And there are those who don't think that's true at all. Yes. For what? The Holy Spirit to convict them. Mm -hmm. No doubt. No question. Okay. Any thoughts or questions on this? All right. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so what's the flip side of that? Presenting these two orders. Mm-hmm. Well, No, no, no. I'll just tell you, like, I'll just be really, like, so, for instance, there's scripture passages that th say things like, um, no one will come to the Father but those that he's given me. Okay. Or things like, once he's in, you're in my hand, nothing can pluck you out of my hand. Um, or in Romans chapter 9 where it says, can the, can the pot ask the potter? Like, some vessels are made for honor, some vessels are made for dishonor. If the potter, I'm paraphrasing, but if the potter wants to make you for dishonor, that's on the potter. You can't question him because you're the pot, that whole conversation. And so, um, you know, Ephesians chapter 1 that says, um, all that um, he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and so forth. So they would say, see, like, there's an order there where you were chosen first. Correct. Okay. Yes. So, in other words, you were saved first. And then you realized it. Yeah, and then you, well, yeah, then you, then I mean, maybe you didn't. There's people that you'll, like, if you listen, if you read, like, you know, Lorraine Botner, who's one of the biggest Calvinist thinkers, he thinks you're going to get to heaven. There's going to be all these people who never heard the gospel, but they just were there. They're just there. 
Mm -hmm. there, there are hyper-Calvinists who don't think we should preach the gospel at all because it's a waste of our time. We should just work on our sanctification process. But that's obviously an error, and the average person would say that's not going to happen. I'm just telling you, like, if you take it to its kind of logical conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a whole thing that most Christians, most American Christians have never been exposed to, which is the idea of corporate election. And that's kind of an elect in the Son idea. And the idea of corporate election is that God predestined that anyone in Christ, corporately, if you're in Christ, you're saved. And if you're not in Christ, you're not saved. That's the idea. But who's in Christ hasn't been pre-established. It's not about it's not about individual election. That individual election, there's a huge case to be made theologically that individual election is not in Scripture at all, right? Like he elected Israel, right. and then the church becomes the fulfillment of Israel. I'm just giving you one idea, right? That could go. You could do on this path. Back to your using mechanism, mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit's Yes. I mean, Christ is the mechanism for our salvation. I mean, he's the he's the ark we get into. Yeah, and ultimately, by the way, this conversation for us is completely an intellectual exercise. Okay, because as I've said before, practically speaking, it doesn't matter. What matters is have you trusted in the finished work of Christ? If you have, you are regenerated, and now it's going to be about sanctification. It's about what do we do next, which is what we're going to spend almost all of our time on. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that it's very clear that he works through his body, the church, and that he designed it that way. And as I said before, he could have done it any way he wanted to. And we may think he's crazy for wanting to use me and you, but he does. Well, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just telling you that we're, we're, we're past this now. Now you know there's a section, there's a group of people who believe in this idea of provenient grace, and the Holy Spirit's doing that part. But we're all going to arrive at you got to trust in Christ, right? We're going to arrive there, and now we're going to go be Christ-like. And that's what the, the, we're going to talk about, you know, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's the, that's the emphasis of our conversation. I just would have, if I had left this out and you didn't know, you would have no, you, you'd be, we wouldn't have done a justice to the topic of doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So when it comes down to it, regardless of the background, our responsibility is just to plant the seeds and let God take it from there. Correct. I'm going to trust that he says that we should preach the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I would say that they don't necessarily think that. They don't know that. They would say we don't know, you know. And and for the and, and the the fair the fair mounted Calvinists who aren't the hyper ones would say that's why we preach because we don't know, okay. and somehow it's a mystery. They would say it's a mystery how we preach, and the preaching somehow. It brings to the person who was already saved, it, it brings it up that they're saved and they respond. And so we still have to do that part. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
they would say that. And like even somebody like R.C. Sproul, who was a huge Calvinist, he says Cal- uh, salvation is not monergistic. So there's there's an idea of monogism monogism and synergism. And monogism says God does everything in the salvation process. And synergism says man has to participate in the salvation process. Even R.C. Sproul ended up saying it's synergistic. Now, how he came to that is really kind of convoluted because he tries to fit it in. But even he would say, no, we have to preach because man has to respond even though he was regenerated first. So... So I would just say there's, there's plenty of Calvinists who would, would absolutely emphatically say we have to preach and people have to respond. Because the, the follow-on to that for me is Christ died for all. Yeah. And that's the whole world. Yeah, I, I understand. That the whole world will receive him. Yes, and that's definitely one of the scriptures that would be used by the traditional view. Okay, great stuff. Next, or two weeks from now, y'all enjoy your Easter. Two weeks from now, we will be talking about sanctification. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.